0: Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Kristen Booth, an actor, writer, and producer you may have seen in movies like Foolproof or Young People Fucking, or on television series like Orphan Black and Workin' Moms. She's also a fixture of Hallmark's signed, sealed, delivered franchise, and she'll be turning up in the third season of The Boys when that show returns in June and she plays the adult Marlene Truscott in the new drama Marlene, opening in Guelph, Toronto, Edmonton, and Calgary this Friday, April 8th. You might want to check that out. Kristen picked The Princess Bride, Rob Reiner's beloved 1987 adaptation of William Goldman's self-aware fairy tale in which a young woman named Buttercup and a farmhand named Wesley fall in love, are separated, make friends, and have adventures on their way back to one another. And true love and all that. Robin Wright and Carrie Elwes play Buttercup and Wesley, backed by a remarkable supporting cast that, on paper, should be a wild clash of styles and tones and attitudes. But right from the start, The Princess Bride just works. I mean, I could tell you why, but we should probably just get into it, right? As you wish. This is someone else's movie.
1: So just to preface this whole thing, The Princess Bride is my all-time favorite film. So if anyone ever asks, what's your favorite film? It's always The Princess Bride. And, you know, sometimes I get different reactions to that. Sometimes it's like, are you kidding me? Like the Princess Bride, you know, the snooty sort of like film uh, <laughs> elites that are like, really? Um, and then other people, I majority are like, oh, I get it. I understand why. And so you have to realize, first of all, that this was a film I saw when I was 13 years old. So I was on the precipice of womanhood. I was, you know, entering puberty Um, and so there were a lot of things going on with me at the time. Um, I saw it in a theater. I can't remember which one, but there was just something about the movie that sat with, like, it just stayed with me forever and it remains today. And I think what it was, was this, the ability the film had to weave comedy with heart, with um, action, and adventure, and suspense, and then, you know, these greater themes of, of family, and loyalty, um, which those sort of, like, came to me later on, they weren't the initial sort of impacts that were, uh, I had, sure. and, and then on top of that, and this is, like, you know, I'm very happy to, and, and to admit that I was quite a vapid young woman. Um, <laughs> no, really truly, I mean, I don't think, I don't think deep down I was, but on the surface, you know, I was very much a product of the 80s of like, you know, women were looked at as sort of um objects. And they were, we were very much um praised for our parents growing up. You know, nowadays I have a daughter, she's 10. I'm going to get into that later because that connects to this whole thing. I'm sure. But uh, at that time, you know, we were told growing up, at least I was, you know, oh, you're so pretty. Like it was always the first thing than any, and I'm not, you know, I don't even consider myself, you know, uniquely attractive, but that was what people first talked about. And now we're told, you know, for the last you know five, six, seven years, don't say that to your daughter. Like that should not be the thing that we prize first and foremost. It should be all these other amazing things, which is a hundred percent right. But at the time when I was growing up, that was literally the first thing anybody knew ever said. It was the, it was the thing that, you know, my grandparents said, my parents said. Um, so at the time when I met Buttercup, um, Obviously, one of the most beautiful women in the world, physically speaking, uh, Robin Wright, I was literally obsessed. I like the long hair flowing on the horseback riding. And um and really, when you look at Buttercup as a character, and this is something that has come to me later on in life too, especially when I shared this film with my daughter recently. She really is quite a vapid character. <laughs> I mean, the scene in the um the forest um where Wesley is being attacked she's being attacked by the REOSs, and then he comes in and he's already been burnt and like slain, and he comes in barely alive and and and, and she takes this stick. This wood sticking, it just kind of like pokes at it and then falls over. It's like, it's like oh my God, you are pathetic. <laughs> I can't believe that you were my female icon growing up, but she truly was. Like, I just, there was something about that character. Now, that being said, there were moments, there were moments that she had when she jumps off the boat into the eel infested waters, unknowingly at the time that it was eel infested. Still, that took a great deal of bravery and there's that great line where he says Wallace Shawn says to her I suppose you think you're brave and she says only compared to some like oh my god like I some of the lines in this film literally still give me goosebumps and that's one of them (laughs) that's lovely Um, and uh and so then you know growing up with her sort of always sort of in the back of my mind is this woman that i de- i identified with in in certain ways i i rode horses growing up i still do um and uh and then her her journey of love really really intrigued me and i've always been a a woman who um believed in the fairy tale so i you know looking back i can of course i really you know was drawn to this film and related to this film i grew up in a family where um, my great, great grandparents were still married when they passed my great grandparents. My parents are still married. My grandparents are like marriage and commitment and long-term commitment. And now I have many things to talk about on that subject now, but growing up, that was what I idealized. That was what I was like, okay, that's the goal. You get married to the love of your life like the person that you would die for and you remain with them till, till you literally die. Uh, And so this film, this love that um, Buttercup and, oh my God, Wesley shared, I was obsessed with it. I was like, that's the, that's the ideal is, is, is a relationship that, you would give everything for you would literally give everything of yourself for that person and and die to remain with them. Um and so growing up that was always sort of a uh influence in my relationships too. It's like I I mean the first time I fell in love um and had my relationship lasted six years. And I I held on to it like it was <laughs> I don't know like a lifeline. I was like I can't let this go it was 20 24 years old and going wait this isn't supposed to happen we're supposed to end up together and get married and live our whole lives together and and die beside one another you know so, so that was what i grew up with and now that being said um i have different opinions about you know marriage and long term commitment and all that now but i am married to someone i met when i was 24 um and have been with them for 20 three, four years. And, um, obviously it isn't the fairy tale, but I have to say like, um, I think the princess bride in some ways, and of course my growing up and my, my family history has really contributed to my, my commitment, my, you know, my steadfastness to like, no, like this is hard work but I very much am still in love with this man and I'm going to, we're going to make this work. Um, and so when I got to choose this film and I started thinking about things, I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe all of these themes and influences that this film actually carries for me. So then cut to this year, beginning of, or actually, sorry, beginning of last year. Okay. Um, 2021. And for the last two years, I think I've been trying to convince my daughter to watch The Princess Bride with me. And she refused, absolutely would not. She was the same thing with E.T. No, not doing it, no interest in older films, go away. And then finally, I don't know what switched in her, but she agreed to watch the film. And my husband and I and my daughter sat and watched The Princess Bride from start to finish she had to yell at me a bunch of times for saying the lines out loud because I um, <laughs> kind of know the film off by heart. Um, but um, I watched in amazement as things that different things that had, you know, really affected me started affecting her. And, and I, and the, and and, and how it stood up, it stood the test of time. And it became one of her favorite movies. And and it was one of the best experiences as a mother to share this film with my daughter. And she being, she just turned 10. And there's something that I, as I watched her watch this film, and I'd never really connected to the role Fred Savage played of the grandson before. It really hadn't even like affected me. But this time around, suddenly I was watching him and his development throughout from the beginning to the end and and also just thinking on a grander scheme of, you know, the theme of growing up and and moving on and the stages of development. And I recently started reading a book by um, Lisa Demore called Untangled. And I highly recommend it for anyone who is uh, embarking on you know, the stages of raising a, a young girl mm-hmm. into her journey of womanhood. Um, It is a phenomenal book, but the, and the first chapter in that book is called Parting with Childhood. And she talks about all of these different elements of what it is like for a young girl. Now, in this case, he's a, he's a young man, but there's still things that relate and, and that are relevant to him. And, and one of the things that Lisa talks about in her book Untamed is um, that push pull that that desire to push family away to to get out of this sort of nest and and embark on your own journey. And so, like Fred Savage's character, you know, he's like, "I don't want Grandpa to come. He treats me like a baby. I'm not interested." And then, as you watch this movie and the grandfather sharing this experience of the book with him to then come to the end where he says, will you come back and read this to me again tomorrow? And the grandfather turns and Rob Reiner is such a brilliant director and the way he frames Peter Falk in that moment. And he just turns with that look and says, as you wish, like I get teary eyed just thinking about it because oh, it's it, yeah,
0: absolutely. It's, that I is the
1: whole movie right there is that moment of, this connection of loyalty and family and that idea that we're, that we should always be there for each other, even when life gets in the way or, or I don't want to say puberty gets in the way, but that idea of pushing back and saying, I don't need you. And then realizing that we all need each other. And then, and then, oh my God, like coupled with COVID and And the lack of community, everything that has sort of dissolved over the past couple of years, um, and we've lost that sense of community. And and I know know for myself, like my family, I've clung to my family like I never have before. My immediate family, like my family unit, my daughter and my husband homeschooling, you know, my daughter has been home with us. It's just been the three of us for so long. I mean, obviously that's changing um, now. But I just, yeah, I mean, the film just sort of like brought up all of these different things that I was not expecting. Um, And then that's just a, you know, again, like a testament to what a phenomenal sort of like enduring iconic film it is.
0: Yeah. It struck me now as it's, I, I can, I cannot conceive of it as it, as it's marking its 35th anniversary this fall, which makes me feel so old. I know, right? <laughs> but but that's that means an entire generation is going to discover it with their kids. Like the the, the kids who saw it are now parents. It's like exactly the story you just told. And suddenly the focus shifts and you understand the framing sequence is just as important, if not more so. And that's kind of the genius of the film too, because I don't know if you've ever read the book, but the book is not the movie. Um, the book is sort of a, it's a meta text by William Goldman and I think written in 1973, I want to say, uh, Mm -hmm. about someone discovering this book and reading it cynically. And so you get passages of the book, which are pure and, and, and the, the, the lyricism is there that we see in the film, but there are also these commentaries about the author being so manipulative and, 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 you know, like Jesus, of course you're going to do this with this character and, uh, Goldman adapting his own book finds a way, and I'm sure Rob Reiner is sitting on his chest to make him do yeah. this. But Goldman found a way to turn that into the audience's own skepticism about going to see a movie where people are in tights jumping up and down and talking about fairy tale concepts. I mean, it is it is Shrek, right? It's Shrek 15 years before, or rather, Shrek borrowed from The Princess Bride and then sort of layered on pop culture references, whereas whereas Reiner just casts pop culture in the roles. So you mm-hmm. have. Andre the Giant being a giant and you have, you know, Billy Crystal sticking around as, as with Carol Kane as Mir- and, and it all works because you're contrasted with the, the rejection by the kid, by Fred Savage as, as the, grandson just refusing to take any of it seriously, which gives us license to sort of have fun with it too. But the thing you said about Buttercup being She's not vapid exactly, but she's empty until she realizes that she has to use all of her skills, right? To 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 that she can repurpose herself. And I can totally see why the young you would respond to that, because it tells mm-hmm. you that being valued for prettiness is fine as long as you can back it up, as long as you have yeah. other things that that work for you. Um yeah. and she is brave and she is smart, and she's really only ever used that to stand up to Wesley and abuse him. <laughs>
1: true,
0: right? Right. (laughs) Until the
1: end, when she finally stands up to Prince Humperdinck.
0: Exactly. But she's standing up to people throughout, right? Like, she's (laughs) always telling people that she's not going to be dismissed for her prettiness, that she's got more value, that she does have things that work for her. But that's the thing that amazes me. On the last rewatch, I I suddenly realized that these are all the same qualities. They're just being used in a new direction because she's realized she's in love. And so Mm -hmm. the love gives purpose to all of her previously, you know, unpalatable things, the things that she was right. dismissed for, because she understands them in the context of how she'd been using them against Wesley. Once they become a uh, part of her arsenal against the world, yeah. once she and Wesley are, are united against the world a team. Yeah. yeah but yeah. they're defending each other constantly, even when they're separated, they're still, they're, they're working to get back together. Their values never change. And mm-hmm. I was really shocked and then pissed off at myself that I've interviewed all of these people over the years and never asked them about how that works about the functioning Uh of it. Right. Like I've, I've talked to Robin Wright and I've talked to Carrie Elwes about the princess bride, but specifically about a reunion. And he was just sort of, or no, no, he just published a book about it. And I'd interviewed him for MSN, but we only had a few minutes. So we just couldn't talk about, you know, we talked about why the film endures, but we don't talk about how the film was built and like, it's a structural masterpiece. It should not work. I mean, I remember seeing it. <laughs> right? Like, I yeah. remember seeing it. I would have been 19. Uh, yeah, just turned 19 in 1987. Uh, the, the week it opened, because it was a TIFF. I don't know if it was the closing night gala, but it played fairly close to the end of the festival. And I saw, like, basically, it was one of those deals where they opened it in theaters the very next day. They held off right. the Toronto opening for the festival premiere. And I went the next day and I caught up like a Sunday matinee or something. And I was, I was the grandson. It's just like, there's no way this is like the spinal tap guy. Come on. And then it just rolls over you like this beautiful embrace and like a big, warm Mm -hmm. fluffy blanket is being tucked in around you. And you don't, you don't notice that you're being seduced by the by the foolishness, right? Because it gives you license to be a kid. I mean, not that I wasn't a kid and not that you weren't either at the time, but like it gave me license to just turn off the cynicism and yeah. appreciate how much fun it is when everybody's just being earnest. Like it's mm-hmm. just I had forgotten how much pleasure you get from the duel uh between indigo and, and uh Wesley, where you have Two people who are like it's 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 right out of the Errol Flynn playbook from the 30s where the villain and the hero are equally matched and equally skilled and allowed to appreciate each other and then mm-hmm. gradually form a friendship while trying to disarm each other and it's just we
1: kill each other. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And then Wesley has that line about how he would know he would what is it? I would no sooner. I would
1: no sooner destroy a stained glass window than an artist like yourself. It's one of my favorite lines of the film. And it's yeah. so brilliant. I I, I, love, I love the fact that Wesley, in that sequence from the time that he climbs up and meets Mandy Patinkin's character, um, he comes in contact with the three of them and, and, you know, that, you know, he leaves Indigo intact and with respect. The same with Andre the Giant's character, uh, Fezzik, and then he gets to Wallace Shawn and <laughs> it's like, it's this amazing moment where you're like, yeah, well, that guy's evil. And so, there's no redeeming quality. There's nothing to respect about this man. Yeah, well, let's kill him off. Like it's just so great. Yeah, without
0: hesitation. And I mean, he yeah. knows what he's doing the second he challenges him to the duel. Yeah. And uh, well,
1: I think he, I think he immediately, even pro- probably prior to all of it, knows who the mastermind is, his what his intent is, and that he he's like, yeah, that guy's collateral damage he's going like yeah. I'm getting rid of him <laughs> and the way that Wallace Shawn dies is just like so brilliant in the midst of laughter thinking that he's bested Wesley because he's so damn smart I just, I, I mean the hubris too in this film um and the and the malignant narcissism as well you know is sort of like pan through with um Prince, Prince Humperdinck Humperdink oh, yeah. and um Wallace sean's character and and they all and they all, you know, they all end up either dead or or miserable. One of my favorite things is to the pain. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, it's something that came up for me and I'm I don't mean to get political, but you know, it's something with in in light of <laughs> what we've been through with Trump and yeah. uh and yeah. now with Putin, um I, I really like I. I go back to to the pain. And I'm like that is what those men deserve. <laughs> You're like death is too easy, you know. It's it's that wallowing in freakish misery forever. That's like where I'm like, yeah, those that's those guys kind of deserve that.
0: I see what you mean. I thought you were going for a larger cultural context where it's like that seems to be what everybody wants now. Where there's you know, like there's no there's no middle ground and we're encouraged to root for the people who are the cruelest. And it's up to us to reject that, but they both work. Yours is just as valid. <laughs> this is where we are now. But there, but then here's a movie that tells you to be kind, to be, you know, to be open to the, to the possibilities in people where, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, absolutely. The six fingered man deserves to be killed uh, in a, in a, in the most crowd pleasing moment I think I ever experienced in a, in a theater that decade. And I, I remember Reiner saying he didn't think it was going to be such a big deal. And that in the editing, he had to pad out the flourish a little longer just so they could get over the applause waves that just didn't stop. Because, right. I mean, it, it, Inigo is the hero of the movie, really.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah. But
0: you can't frame it that way because it still has to be about Wesley and Buttercup being happy at the end, right? Like His satisfaction mm-hmm. comes, what, 15 minutes before the movie is over. Uh, mm-hmm. but but it's all we want by the time we get there and it is that refutation of evil right like the worst person in the world is someone who tortured this child uh, slew his parents destroyed his life made him the person he is yes but not for any reason that Inigo personally appreciates like he's just fueled by emptiness and 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 revenge and then yeah all the stories tell us that revenge isn't important and all The, you know, all the legendary heroes are the people who can put that aside. And yet in that moment, we want him to win so hard. Mm -hmm. And Reiner just like Reiner and Goldman both just get out of the way. They let that moment happen. And then because of the audience response, they just have to leave it there. And it's Christopher Guest, like one of the sweetest, funniest people on the planet as this malicious horror Mm -hmm. And we want, Mm -hmm. like, it's the only time, that's the one thing I would say to to Rob Reiner if I ever did get to talk to him. It's like, you made me want Christopher Guest dead. And I've I've been reconciling that with the rest of your output forever, but it works. It's like, it's so, it's that one moment where it's okay because Inigo isn't the central figure, right? Like Wesley's killing people as well, but he's always much more calculated and cold about it and Inigo gets to show it like well, Mandy well, Patinkin so gets so to much show it
1: yeah exactly right yeah yeah something that he has carried for a lifetime it's it's fueled him um, so it is it is this sort of un, unbelievably heroic moment but i think i think what what the story and what rob accomplishes that you it's like it's okay because he's unredeemable in the end like you mm-hmm. realize throughout the film there is no guilt. There is no search for, uh, redemption in this character. There is no, um, he does not feel that he did anything wrong in killing this young boy's father and then physically maiming him. And and, and never, there's, you never once see a glimmer of any regret and, and self-reflection. And I think Ultimately, that's what makes everyone stand up and cheer. Like, if you had seen that, if you had seen hope for change, I don't think we would have reacted the same way. But because he is this representation of pure evil. Yeah. You're like, fuck yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And he's a count, right? He's a noble. That's the other thing that goes on in this story is that people with power are inevitably Mm -hmm. awful and the people on the outside which is exactly the way you lure in a young audience of cynical viewers right even the original dread pirate roberts who wasn't the original dread but you know what i'm saying he doesn't kill wesley he teaches him how to be better and it's the pose of the pirate right he he's he's an outlaw but he has a code he has morality and everyone who is everyone who's on the side of the angels gets to win in this movie and it's absolutely wonderful this time through watching it uh, before Montoya takes his revenge, Patinkin delivers the lines, offer me money, offer me power, as though he's testing himself. Like as though he's willing, mm. like, will he be corrupted or can he go through with this? And
1: Oh, you know, I never thought of it that way. Either. And I love that.
0: This was the first time it occurred to me. And it's. I think it's because I know the movie mm. so well, again, that I'm just sort of picking out little moments and, and drilling in, but, I think he's, I mean, I think it's Goldman's flourish, right? Like he's he's going through all the versions of this that would have played out and he's not getting them. So he's pushing for them. And then he still follows through because that's what he wants more than anything else. But Patinkin makes it feel like maybe it's a test. Like maybe he's just I, trying to find out if this is real
1: oh, and earns it again, like layer. all over again. I love that. I Oh, that's so great. <laughs> Like you just illustrated, one of the reasons why it stands the test of time because with each viewing, depending on your perspective, you learn something new, or you discover something new, or many new things. And and I think for myself, I've probably seen the movie at least forty-five times. Wow, at least. Um, and I, and I'm still like, for example, watching it with my daughter. I still am finding. Things Or hearing jokes differently that, you know, awaken something um, that hasn't been before kind of thing. But, you know, it's interesting what you said about the power creates evil, because I always sort of mused on um, Prince Humperdinck and then his father and the difference between those two men. And obviously his father ruled. Far before Prince Humperdinck kind of took over because of his his father's dementia, but he seemed like such a kind, gentle man. And 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 Buttercup even at the end says like I you know I'm I want he she kisses him and he's like what was that for and she says because you've always been so kind to me and I'm going to kill myself (laughs) and he's like oh won't that be nice (laughs) and it's this hilarious moment but. But there is something else there that that maybe I, I you know always kind of sort of sat in the back of my mind, but I never really really looked at. Is like how did Prince Humberdink become such a evil character when you see his father being so sweet and gentle and kind and sort of like passive? Like it's a very interesting uh, mm. sort of the, sort of relationship to look at.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just assumed. He was sheltered and pampered, and this is what he became. I mean, we see kind of what Buttercup could become too, right? If she doesn't, if she doesn't leave, if she doesn't abandon everything uh, that she comes from, that she doesn't have to stress over anything. She has, she has everything she wants, and she's taught, True. educated, and given every opportunity. And if you don't have something to ground you, you become Humperdinck, or you become uh, the Count. You become. So, Count Rugen is that's right. Uh, the filthy noble monsters, the, the people that just exist to uh, to feed on everything around them. And you know, Humperdinck, Humperdinck benefits so much from Chris Sarandon being so charming, and so you know, just kind of fairy tale handsome. He looks like a fairy tale prince would look. And mm-hmm. so you keep wanting him to be better. Some part of the viewer wants them to be. You know, no, this this is the handsome prince. It's like, oh, no, he's terrible. He's awful. <laughs> and it's just a simple undercutting of a cliche. But because, yeah, Surrendan never blinks and, and he never, I mean, he camps it up a little bit, but only when he's being his most evil. Uh, and mm. even then, he's still sort of fussing about the economy of, ter- of torturing someone and how much effort it takes and all of that. Right, um, right that just makes him like it the the script never forgets that this guy is educated and he knows how he knows what he's doing like he understands the mechanics and the machinery of empire he's just a terrible person he's a terrible person yeah and and that's that's enough right because he's he's the prince and no one's going to say no to him so he just steamrolls over everybody with his Truly horrible ideas. And he's found the count as an enabler. And this is just where things have ended up. And, you know, next step war. That's just what's going to happen.
1: Yeah. In fall of 2020, Carrie Eloise organized this
0: fundraising oh, uh,
1: I, um, table read.
0: So the original to, cast?
1: Yeah. Oh, to raise no, I missed that. For, yeah. Look it up. It's fascinating. So to raise money for the Democratic. Uh, party in wisconsin mm-hmm. he organized this table read the entire original cast uh that is you know still alive um sure. rob reiner uh and then some new people taking on roles um of those who had been who have just left us um and they did this fundraiser and they raised over four million dollars Uh, People
0: love the Princess Bride.
1: People love the Princess Bride. Um, Yeah, so they had like 100,000 people tune in and pay to, to watch it, and they raised over $4 million. So I thought that was pretty phenomenal.
0: Of course, the Princess Bride would be used by Democrats because there's no way you can come away from that thing thinking it's a Republican manifesto. But that does Definitely like not. that speaks to its views on power, right? Like it's absolutely a movie written by a liberal, uh, okay. and or in a, and a novel as well, where it asks you to question the values you've held your whole life, you know, family values of, of fairy tale stuff, and realize that stereotypes and cliches can't define any story. And and mm-hmm. the Power of that, and the way that that works as a as an experience in a movie theater or on video, you know, it's one of those films that it just it so easily resists or so consistently resists misinterpretations because mm. you cannot watch three minutes of it and come away thinking it is anything other than what it is. Like that, it's yeah. that it what it's saying about power and what it's saying about responsibility and what it's saying about love. And friendship and and the families. Yeah. And the families that people form. Because at the end, you have this wonderful shot of them riding off on their horses together. And it's like, those people hated each other the first time they met. That's, you watch this whole movie and you see that the best elements of these characters respond to the others. Like they they resonate with each other and they form this family, and none of them is going to be a princess or a king. They refuse them when they're offered to Mm -hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the only characters who don't change, I guess, are probably Miracle Max and his wife, uh, mm. because, because they're comic relief, but that means like Billy Crystal and Carol King just get to fight amongst themselves and be the truth tellers and, and, you know, speak to the things that really matter and puncture everything else. That's sort of the function of the, 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 the outer narrative, the framing device in the book is to sort of be sticky around the stuff that is being presented so seriously. And I don't know if it's the only time that's happened or the first time that's happened where it didn't feel like a like a conceit because mm. you know like right after this there's the wave of television like Hercules the Legendary Journeys and Xena Warrior Princess where characters in mythical stories are acting colloquially and speaking in just sort of patter. And it's all based in this, I think. It comes mm. from that that collision of Expectation and reality in The Princess Bride, where characters can speak in ridiculous, florid construction, but also kind of make puns about waiting for Vizzini and Shirley Ramini and Peanuts and things. And Mm -hmm. it's just, you just, (laughs) like, it's so sweet and aware that people would, you know, whatever era you're in, you're going to joke around with your friends. Mm. And that's something that I think had been missing from all these high-minded fantasy things that had happened before. And you need like, and I was wondering if this is part of the the commentary on Humperdinck too. Rob Reiner is like a showbiz kid. He grew up, he's the son of Carl Reiner. He grew up in this world and always saw the opportunities. And yes, you know, he was, he benefited from his connections, but I think he had a moral core that kept him from being completely corrupted by the opportunity. And maybe Humperdinck is like his worst case scenario. That's the guy he could have become.
1: that's That's an interesting way to look at it.
0: You know, like charming and entitled and connected and an absolute vapid
1: monster. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so many um, elements of this film that can be dissected, that you can look at. And, And I think to be able to have a film, you know, 33 years later, you know, that kids today now can watch and then grow up like us and still look at and still find, you know, things that are relevant today. I think that's pretty, a pretty incredible accomplishment. All all wrapped in this hilarious, you know, romp basically. Well, yeah, it
0: never lets you take it seriously until the very end when everything suddenly matters, but it encourages you to have the most fun possible. Like it's okay that the backdrops are painted and it doesn't really matter that things look a little cheesy and and cheap. Uh, I mean, the thing was, it was not an inexpensive production. I I checked, I I was surprised to find out how expensive it was. It cost $16 million at the time, which was quite a bit of money, Um, but it feels handmade in the best possible way. Like it feels a little sloppy. Um, And again, maybe it's simply that when Buttercup rolls down the hill early on, it kind of looks goofy. Um, the, You know, Robin Wright just if
1: you, if you slow it down and you, You'll see that it's a big ass dude In yes. a dress and a wig
0: <laughs> Well, I was going to say Robin Wright launches herself out of frame And then is replaced by this Larger version of Buttercup, shall we say
1: yeah. I don't think they were as good At casting stunt doubles at that time
0: <laughs> No But it also feels like the kind of thing That you would get in a movie like this, right? Because you're just Yeah it, you're open to it. You're open to all of it when it's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe it's because you're in the imagination of a little boy, but I don't think so. I think we're seeing the objective reality, not something that Fred Savage is conjuring up in his head. This is the way it should be. This is the way that mm-hmm. fairy tales ought to look. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, the, the the magic of Elwes and Wright together is something that you can't discount because you have to hang the entire movie on, their relationship they spend almost no time together but they need to sell it and build it and then play to it and and again i had seen always in some stuff he was cast because they liked his look in lady jane which had come out the year before which is a great big serious romance for teenage girls i guarantee you that was how it was received in 1986 when i was surrounded I by seen teenage
1: i so i have to watch that
0: <laughs> oh it's a swooner um it's the story of a <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter plays plays uh, the woman it. who was queen for like 6 hours in in England and died tragically and it's it's I think tragic I, I mean it's I have to admit it's been a very long time since I saw it but it was a summertime release and and it was just this massive sleeper it sounds like a contradiction in terms but I was in grade yeah, grade 11 or 12, surrounded by 16-year-old girls at school who were, who would not stop talking about going to see it again next weekend. Oh, wow. um, it was it was a big, like it was the costume drama that kids connected to rather than adults. It was sort of dismissed as very silly and stuffy, um, but the kids got it. And, you know... is
1: like, it like That Time's Bridgerton?
0: No, no, it wasn't anywhere near, like Bridgerton's something with sex. Lady Jane is about touching. Like Lady Jane is about, you know, long glances and, and the casual caress of a glove on a shoulder. But isn't, uh, that the,
1: isn't that the sign of the times that yeah. now, oh, you yeah. know, people your age are that at that time now it's all about sex. And then it was about a glance across the room held for a very long time.
0: Yeah, it was the pre-social media version of of uh, yeah. a swooner. Yeah, but exactly. I'm sure they're like. Now it would be just gift to infinity with all these long longing looks between the two leads, but yeah, check, take it, take a look at it I'm, because I it, will. it feels like the serious cousin, like the older sister to the princess bride, because the princess bride okay. is the scrappy weird kid having fun with the story. And lady Jane is all very fluttery and serious, but always plays effectively the same character, but without any self-awareness. He's playing okay. a romantic lead. And the very okay. next year he is just like, Oh, that guy was an idiot. I'm gonna have fun. And it's it's delightful. And Robin Wright gets to do the reverse, uh, which is start flighty and haughty and just sort of dismissive and then become more serious as she goes along. And mm-hmm. it's just like it's it's an it literally is a star-making performance. I mean, like whoever plays that role had an excellent chance of becoming a a movie star but she she assumes like there's something about her performance as buttercup that says like she owns the frame before she even becomes the hero and Mm -hmm. it just Mm -hmm. she just asserts herself in this movie without any jokes like buttercup is funny but she's not self-aware in the rest of it. Yeah,
1: but she, no, she is the straight woman or she is the one that plays it straight. I mean, she has some, some beautiful moments where you laugh at what she is doing or saying, but no, she is the, yeah, she's the straight woman. Um, I find, I find it, you know, fascinating her, her trajectory and her career, That she has gone from, I think it was Santa Barbara, which was soap opera at the time. That's right. That was her sort of foray into acting. And then Buttercup. And then, you know, cut to now or, you know, five, six, seven years ago, she was playing the first lady in House of Cards. And then when the whole Kevin Spacey thing happened, that last season, she was was it, man. Yeah, they hung the whole show on her. And she directed, and now that like most of her career is is in the behind the camera, um, yeah I've, she's I've been someone I admire greatly as you know sort of somebody that I look up to career wise as as an actress and now director producer.
0: yeah, she's she's allowed it's strange like she's allowed herself to be typed as an actor it's sort of like playing harder, you know, like chiseled roles almost but still with a, with an appreciation of every other possibility. Like she hasn't refused anything else. She's just steered Mm -hmm. into this thing. Like what does she have like 10 minutes in Blade Runner 2049? And she's still the best thing in those 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. You're just happy to see her whenever she turns up because it feels like somebody who's thought about the role and you're getting quality. Uh, Did you ever see?
1: She has an organic quality that you can't teach. It's just, it's just there. You as an actor, you either have it or you don't, and she has it. It's it's just this. I don't know how else to describe it except organic. It just it just is there.
0: Yeah. Well, she can match the tone of whatever she's in, right? Mm -hmm. Like not everyone can do that. Some, and I guess maybe that's the difference between a movie star and a character actor, right? Someone who can only be themselves in different versions, or someone who can approximate the tone and like inhabit the world.
1: Yeah, they can morph into an unrecognizable being (laughs) from, from who they truly are. Yeah. 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 And
0: while still retaining the, whatever quality it is that we want to see in Mm -hmm. in their performance, because that's how you build a continuum. I'm I'm like acting is such an alchemy to me. I kind of understand it, but I still, you know, like I'm scared of it. Uh,
1: Join the club. (laughs) (laughs) Same boat, same boat.
0: (laughs) But when you see something like this and you realize that all all they had to do was find a way to relax into it, right? And just, and play together. And Mm -hmm. you still get these huge dramatic moments and you still get these great moments that bring the room to its feet. And then to close it all off with that shot, to just bring it back to the thing you mentioned, the shot of Peter Falk turning around and saying, as you wish. And I swear he looks 20 years younger in that one shot. No, isn't it insane? I, I got to ask him about that. The one time I interviewed him a few years later on a Cassavetes retrospective, uh, and it was him paired with Jenna Rollins at a table in uh, in the um, the American Film Institute in, in Hollywood. It was my first time in LA, and I was I couldn't have been more starry. I'd just sit down with Peter Falk and Jenna it's, Rollins yeah, and yeah. Seymour Cassell and Al Ruban are at the other table, and we're talking about like the five film, Cassavetti's films that had just been restored and released for the first time: Women of the Influence, and Faces and Shadows, and Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and Opening Night. And at the very end, cause, and this was in the olden days where you would sit at a round table and have breakfast with these people. And it was like 45 minutes of time. And, uh, and, you know, after I got over my initial inability to open my mouth and speak to these people <laughs> at the very end, I just, I said, like, I have to know, like, I'm, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but. In The Princess Bride, you have this, like, yeah, we shot it in a day. You know, he was just completely dismissive. Not in a bad way. Just, it was just like, oh, it's not that big a deal. Matter of fact. he He was having a good time with his friends is how he framed it. And I said, like, okay, but in that last shot, you look 20 years younger. And how? How? Like, what is that, like, are you some sort of, is the character supposed to be some sort of, like... Spirit, like, are we seeing this guy rejuvenated? What is that shot? And he just said, "I knocked a light with my arm," and they kept it in. And I don't know if I believe him, but I want it to be true.
1: Oh wow, wow! Because that's like what does he have to gain by lying? I I have a feeling he's telling the truth.
0: I know, maybe it's like a print the legend thing, but it's just, there's no explanation for it. It just happens. And it, it does somehow sum up the whole movie in this beautiful, Mm. unspoken way of, you know, like we are our best selves when we're with the people we truly care about. And that's the whole thing. And I don't, I don't know how you know you have that as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, that the it's not even a metaphor, it's just a mission statement that you leave the audience with. You go off and quietly, and then there's those little that reverie over the credits of just Mm -hmm. Buttercup and Wesleyan horses. And
1: honestly, I don't think you do know. I, I I feel like sometimes on certain projects, um you come into something and no one has any clue. You, you obviously, you know, if you have a good script that that, you know, if you have any concept of good writing, good storytelling, you know, coming in, if you have a good script. But other than that, when you assemble a crew and a cast and, and you know, every single component of, of a project, uh, whether it's television or film or even theater, you don't know how everyone is going to mesh. You don't know how it's all going to come off the page. You can never predict the unpredictable elements of whatever may, co- you know, the the snags, the what, what have you, the problems that are going to come up. And ultimately you, as I think as, as a casting director, as a producer, as a director, you know, all those things, you, you do your best to guess. You guess which personalities are going to meld well together. You know, that people have chemistry t- tests all the time for, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not they work well together. Um, and, but I think a lot of it is, is just luck. It truly is just luck. And I feel like there is a little bit of a, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like um, uh, formula for it, yeah. but really in the end, in the end, it's luck and it's, and it's kismet and it's like serendipity. And if something comes together and literally flies off that page and the chemistry is perfect and, and all those other elements, whether you want to say that it's from above, like that someone's looking over and saying, yeah, this, I'm going to sprinkle my magic on this project. I mean, really, you just never know. Um, so I think, I think the princess bride is touched by that magic.
0: It's definitely one of the films that I bring up when I talk about how it's easier to watch a good movie the second time through because you're not afraid of it failing. Like you don't have (laughs) We've all seen those, right? Like we've all seen movies that are tremendously entertaining for maybe 102 minutes and then just completely collapse in the third act. Something goes wrong. It happens and you know, it's regrettable. But yeah. when you see something that works all the way through, the second time is better because you don't have that anxiety in the back of your mind. Or at least I don't as a, as a no, critic. No, I, I,
1: I agree with you. I've never heard it like sort of articulated in that way, but I agree 100% because, yeah, there is this, especially when something is really, you're re, very excited to see something. You know, it has, has all these sort of people that you admire or that you want, or it's been really pumped in the media and you're like, sure. oh my God, I can't wait to see this. What, how this comes all together and so there is there's this leveling of anxiety that you sit with while you watch it for the first time you're like please don't fall apart please don't be ruined by this that or the other thing and and you're right like that second time you're like that anxiety's gone and you can just sit back and really revel in the artistry and the and how it all came together
0: yeah those are the fun ones to drag people back to as well because mm-hmm. they'll be like 48 Re-? times or yeah. 45
1: for me on this on this film
0: so as far as the 45 48 time viewing and and I Mm. completely understand what is that that's not even twice a year that's fine it's it's not unreasonable I mean unless it was like 35 the first year which is how I saw Back to the Future which was my film school basically like just over and over and over again (laughs) watching it um no
1: no it's 40 45 48 times over you know I was 13 at the time I'm now almost 50 so you do the math. I'm not a math mathematician.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was just like 35 year run, so I'm just dividing. But
1: is there anything
0: from the Princess Bride that you have used or borrowed or or referenced oh God, or yeah.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh my God, constantly. Um, really. Oh yeah. I mean I mean, one thing one thing that I think that I sort of took and like stole from that is is this my love of comedy um, and comedy coming out of um, tragedy or comedy coming out of uh, the best comedy in my opinion is that comes out of the serious serious moments. And I think the princess bride, even though it is sort of like aware of itself in that it's still that the, some of the moments uh, of comedy that come out of that film in, in this most serious moments. I, 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 so something that I strive for in my own performances and in, in things that I seek out to watch. Um, so that for sure, I, I have stolen from Robin Wright so many times in, in my career from that film and, and other, um, performances, uh, that she's delivered. Cause I've kind of like ever since followed her. Mm-hmm. Um, And, uh, and I think it's influenced my, what I look for, like in, in, in what entertains me, like what, what the, my, my ideal, you know, night in or night out at a, at a theater it's, it's shaped what I really sort of gravitate toward. I want, I want to laugh. I want to cry. And, and I want to sit on the edge of my seat. And I think the Princess Bride sort of like etched that in me. That that was that was that moment. And the first time I saw that film, I was like, this is what I want. This is what I gravitate towards. Forever. Forever.
0: My thanks to Kristen Booth, whose new film Marlene opens in Guelph, Toronto, Edmonton, and Calgary this Friday, April 8th. Thanks also to Allie lamare Shedden. She knows what she did. You can find Kristen on Twitter at Kristen T. Booth, all one word, and you can find The Princess Bride in an excellent Blu-ray special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also streaming on Disney Plus in the U.S. and Canada, and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. I politely remind you that the first year of the podcast is available for just $20 at payhip.com semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 46 of which are not currently available anywhere else. Payhip.com semcast. Check it out. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.